and saved. It is the power of God. All hail King Jesus. Thank you, Musos. Grade sixes and sevens, won't you go on upstairs? And as you all take your seats, I want to greet all of you lovely, wonderful, amazing people. It is so wonderful to see you. Not least of all because I'm a bit of an Yensama crocodile, or Piumlik. My wife is not here, she is away, and so um, it's nice to be with people and to be hanging out with you this morning. And uh, I know many folk are away, um, taking advantage of a great long weekend. But um, we are journeying through this incredible book of Song of Songs, which has come and reminded us of the relationship that we're called to, that we're invited to in God. And so God doesn't want us to come and have a relationship with our Bibles or in prayer or with church, but with Him. And those things are simply a tool to come and draw us to Him and to enjoy His presence. And I hope and I trust and I pray that something of an excitement and an enthusiasm is building up inside of you for the very real, for the very vital relationship that you have in Christ Jesus with Almighty God. And so as we've been journeying through this, we've come and we've found ourselves in a preach, which has been a three-part preach called Foxes, Freeloaders, and Fears. I saw someone titled it Foxes and Freeloaders with Fears. Thankfully, it's not that. It's three parts. And what we're doing is we're recognizing how there are certain things that we have control over in our lives that come and influence and impact the health and the well-being of our horizontal relationships, especially in marriage, but also our vertical relationship with God. And so today we're at that third part. And so just if you're kind of leaning in right here, right now for the first time, I can't encourage you enough to go back and to listen to the previous installments of the series just to bring a bit more context. But we're in the third part today. We're talking about fears. And I was thinking about this um, this week and was reminded of uh, in the 2000s going on a long-haul flight overseas. And if you remember, the 2000s were, you know, the the war on terror and uh, racial profiling to a degree which was very dangerous. Uh, And uh, I was on a plane the one day coming in and sitting down and putting my stuff in the overhead compartment and I saw an Arab man standing up and, uh, and just got to say up front, brought into that racial profiling in a moment. It was like, because he stood up, he put things, then he sat down, and then he stood up, and he was fiddling in the overhead compartment. And as he's doing this, I'm thinking, this is strange. And, and then these things start to come into my head, the war and terror. And, and I'm not an insecure, fearful kind of person. But this, and then I started thinking of being thousands of feet up in the air, and it's a long way down. And next thing, this guy's busy scratching himself here, yeah, and I'm, is that a trigger for a bomb or something? He's sweating profusely, and I'm, oh my goodness, this guy's nervous. This is us. I'm sitting down. I'm looking for spawn marks. Maybe that guy, he looks big. He could help me take this guy down. And, and really what it was was a little thought that began to spiral And what it is symptomatic of is really just the whirlwind or the whirlpool of unaddressed fears, anxiety and dread that sits in us that begins to spiral and and come to a point where it's just like all you can see is is this nonsense around you. 
And it probably was that he simply had a hot curry the night before and had eczema and he was looking for Gaviscon in his bag and here I am being this real idiot. And so when we come and we talk about fears, fears are very, very real. Even as we sit here right now, if we could come and take these fears that are represented by each person in the room and make them seen. We take the unseen and we turn them into something that can be seen. Uh, can you imagine the cloud that would be over us? And so in Song of Songs we come and we've seen there are these little foxes, there's this danger of freeloaders and there are now these fears that we're going to see in Our Lady. And so reading from chapter 3 verse 1, it says there, all night long, and so this is her, all night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. And so this is her fear, that she's lost her love. She's lost her loved one. I will get up now and go about the city, through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. Can you see the whirlpool beginning to establish itself? I'm going to go. I'm going to go look for him. I will search for the one my heart loves. And so I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me, and as they made their rounds in the city, have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And so here she is. She's sitting. She's waiting for the one her heart loves. And she's obviously been waiting for long and too long and he has not come. And so she's concerned about this. She's worrying. And so he should have been here, but he's not. She expected him, but he's not there. And so where could he be? Maybe, maybe he's lost. Maybe he's lost and he couldn't find his way. But really, he's been here before. He knows where I live, so he's not lost. And so maybe, he, maybe he's been delayed. Maybe there's trouble on the way. Maybe he's been attacked by someone. But actually, he could bench press Augustus Gloop and he could run the 100 meters in 11 seconds flat. There's no way someone's going to attack him. If anything, he'd attack someone. And so he's not attacked. Maybe, maybe he's sick. Maybe he's fallen down and no one knows that he's on the side of the road. Maybe he's sick. But truly, I saw him just yesterday and he was fine. It couldn't be that. I wonder, where is he? Maybe actually he's avoiding me. Maybe he's avoiding me. Maybe he's not so into me anymore, but that can't be true. I mean, look at me. Look how hot I am. I mean, I'm a, I'm a prize. That can't be it. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's someone else. Maybe it's the cashier from the store. Or maybe that new assistant who looks a little dodgy. Maybe that's what's going on, and he's really handsome. No one can, no one can really resist him. And so it's this, this whirlpool of unaddressed fears that spiral down and down and down. And eventually she founds him. And all it was was that he was on neighborhood watch that night, forgot to tell him, tell her. And on the way home, he stopped to get some KFC. And that's all it was. And for hours and hours, she's been sitting there with a pit of despair inside of her. And so this is her nightmare, that he's gone, that he's not coming back. And what we've got to come and say is that some fears are legitimate. Not, not all fear is, is, is bad. In fact, there are some legitimate fears sometimes, but how, 
However we come across it, we've got to realize and we've got to understand that fears are not meant to be fed, they're meant to be led. And this is my call for us today, is in the midst of our relationships horizontally, especially in our marriages and our relationships with our loved ones, and even with our friends and family, we've got to come and make sure that we do not feed the fears that live inside of us, we've got to come and lead them. And in the context of our vertical relationship with God, we need to come and not allow those fears that are there to be fed. We need to come and let them be led. And so what are some of your fears? In the context of your marriage, if you are here today and you're married, what is your greatest fear? So let me tell you, and it's lucky because Kaz is not here, so I can... I don't even have to stand this side of the pulpit. I can come here. And so my greatest fear is that I'd lose Kaz. That something would happen to her. And then I'd have to start from scratch and all the training of 20 years of training to train her up to where she is now. I've got to start that with someone else and I just can't bear the thought. I joke. I joke. But also I don't joke. Because it's been 20 years of Kaz and I coming together and choosing a path of mutual compromise and coming and building a life together. And so as much as I've been training her, she's been training me, and we've been coming and choosing each other. Instead of ourselves, we continually come and choose us and learn and adapt and realize things and being students of each other. We've built a life together where we are the embodiment of what the Bible speaks, that, are, that, that they would leave their parents and two would become one. And so I fear that if I was to lose cares, it would be almost like if I had a tattoo and you're removing a tattoo, uh, but not a little tattoo on the arm here, like a tattoo all over my body, and not just a surface level tattoo, a tattoo where the ink has gone to my bones. To lose cares would be to come and remove that from me. It feels impossible. And it gives me a sick feeling, and especially in moments like this when she's away, I think of it and I, I dread it. And so what is your biggest fear in your marriage? Chances are it's a loss of love, or the loss of love as you have it now. And so obviously death is one version of that, but there are others. Disability, disease, infidelity, emotional disconnection, growing apart, divorce, or more widely, financial insecurity or a relapse into past damaging behaviors. And so for the marrieds, what is your greatest fear? What about the widows or the widowers? How about you? Maybe it's that you'll never know love again. Or maybe that you might have to go through the pain of losing someone again. Or the divorcees, that fear of being alone, that fear of social isolation, the fear of financial insecurity, the fear of parenting alone or split parenting, or the fear of rejection. What about those people that are engaged, looking to get married? Is there a little bit of a fear of commitment there? A fear of compatibility? A fear of a wedding disaster? Or that wedding anxiety? All those things that need to happen? 
the fear of a loss of independence. But what about the singles in the room? Fear of never finding anyone, the fear of waiting too long, the fear of being alone, the fear of rejection, the fear of missing out. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. <laughs> it feels like the air has been sucked out of the room and I've come and punched everyone in the stomachs because these aren't really great thoughts, right? Thinking about these things. But at the same time, I want to come and say that there are legitimate fears. There are legitimate fears. Losing a spouse is a legitimate fear. It is a reality. Never loving again. The fear of social isolation. The fear of compatibility. These are all legitimate fears. And maybe just on that fear of compatibility, if I could just take a little sidebar for a moment and speak to our singles or those who want to get married or get married again or those who are engaged and just come uh, and uh, uh, quotes a well-known verse. I think it goes something like, love is blind and marriage is the, is the eye-opener. Is that in Scripture or is it just on Facebook? I think it's in Facebook, but I think there's some truth to that. Is that love is blind, but marriage is the eye-opener. And so I think, of, I think of poor old Prince Charming, who stands on the, you know, on the cusp of getting married to Princess Fiona, and next thing, Princess Fiona turns into a, a green ogre. And we feel sorry for, for Prince Charming, but actually, when you come and look at Prince Charming, he's not so charming underneath it all. And so there's this question of, you come in and you see, oh, he's Prince Charming, he's handsome, he's good looking, but what's actually lurking underneath there? And, and how many times it's been that people have come together and they're like, oh, he's Prince Charming, and then they get married and wake up the next morning, finds out that he's got bad, bad halitosis, and that it's just irredeemable, and... He wears the same pair of underwear seven times in a, in a row. And like, what have I let myself into? My goodness. And so in 2019, statistics in South Africa said that 50% of marriages ended in divorce. That's one in two. That's half the room, statistically. Now we're in a church, hopefully we're working through things. And, and it means that maybe... Maybe we're like 100%, we're good. But there's another room like this then that all of them are going to get divorced. It's a massive number. It's one in two. They talk about the seven-year itch of marriage, that when you come into a marriage, the first seven years are the most, the, the most volatile, that if there's going to be a divorce, the greatest chance is going to be in the first seven years. And so when you get married, you should come and they, they should put a warning sign on it, you know, like on cigarette boxes. You know, smoking can be bad for your health. You come put it on, on marriage. Marriage can be bad for your health. You come and you marry Prince Charming and you find out, oh my goodness, he's actually a dragon. He's a narcissist. He's a pig. And so, and so, <laughs> and so more than that, it's not just that he's this or she's that. You come and you, you speak to psycho psychologists and they talk about the fact that if you've got, as a family, if you've got any children six and under, then you're a family in crisis. So, it's a true thing. And so, uh, someone in crisis is someone that's, um, that's uh, lost someone, uh, going through an overseas move, or an, uh, uh, like a, uh, a move to a new province or new country. Uh, you've lost your job, and another one is you've got kids that are six and under. Now, I know a couple that at one stage had four kids, four and under. <laughs> so, can you imagine? And so, 
the reality is, is that it's tough and it's difficult. And so when we come and we look into spend our lives with someone, it's so important that we come and make the right decision. And so to the singles, to those that are going to get married, I want to urge you and encourage you that you find the right person. And so uh, we come and we, we talk about arranged marriage and we say, oh my goodness, what a scandal. How can we do that? That's a, just robbing people of their freedoms. And there's a young girl who was... Uh, in a culture that was around, um, worked around arranging marriages, and she was in her 20s, and she was on the cusp of having her husband arranged for her, and they asked her, you know, what are her thoughts? And she said, well, uh, and you guys would know this in the context of two or three weeks ago, I spoke around the three biggest decisions in life. The second is who you choose to spend this life with. It's a big, big decision. And she came and she said, well, when it comes to deciding how I'm going to spend the, next, the rest of my life, we could come and rely on me, a person that has zero experience in that, or we could come and rely on my parents who have massive experience in that. Where should I go? What should I do? And so there's some wisdom in that, and I'm not suggesting we must now go to arrange marriages, but I am suggesting including others in your journey and in your story. And so, and so I'm suggesting others not necessarily your buddies that will come and tell you what you want to hear. Yeah, he's so handsome. He's got a lovely bum and, and she's so pretty and, you know, it's wonderful. But it's like your parents and your parents, yes, they, they know stuff and they, they love you and they're going to tell you not what you want to hear but what you need to hear. And so your parents are a good go-to but you also know, need to know that your parents have got an inbuilt bias towards you. And so they love you so much. And sometimes that bias can also come and influence their input. And so you even need people outside of that space. And so you need people that you trust, that can come and tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. The Bible says, faithful are the kisses of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of one's enemy. And so, and so you need to come and involve others, leaders, leaders in your life. And so if you're in a fellowship group, if you're in this church, involve us, include us. And so before you ask her out, come and chat to us. There's a guy in this church who is so intentional around this. He's not even with anyone, but he's coming and he's working through this stuff in his life. And he's making such great decisions now, busy shaping, readying his life to go through this stuff. And he's including us, which makes it so easy to be involved in this because as it goes along, we're like, yes, we're backing you. Yes, we're backing you. And so before you get engaged, come and chat to us. And before you set the date of this is when we're going to get married, come and chat to us. Because there's something very awkward that happens when, and let me just say that I don't, I don't marry anyone that I don't have faith for. And part of that is walking a journey with them, knowing their story. And so it's very awkward when someone comes and says, hey, we're getting married in two and a half months' time. I've got a date. Can you come and marry us? And I'm like, ah, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, number one, I've got a holiday planned. Uh, three years ago, I put the deposit in. I put the leave in for that time. So I mean, I've got to interrupt my holiday for that. But also, what happens if we're journeying in the prep that we do? Because I'm not going to marry anyone that we haven't done pre-prep with. What if we're journeying through that and we find a big red flag? Now you've sent invites out. You've asked people to come. You've put deposits down. There's massive pressure. Shouldn't we first come and just make sure that there's compatibility here? It makes it all the more easier if you're journeying, even before you get together with anyone, 
to come and know someone's story and to journey with them. And so all of this is around the fear of compatibility and just a sidebar shout out to those that are looking to get married. Maybe you know someone. Maybe you want to, uh, you know, cut this little part of the recording out and send it to them. It would be really helpful uh, because it's really, really difficult getting married one day and you find out Prince Charming is a beast. And so these are some of the fears that we have, right? To the vertical. And so if we jump from the horizontal to the vertical, the second layer of Song of Songs is not just the horizontal, it's the vertical, our relationship with God. There are fears that we have with regards to God and God in our life, aren't there? And so some of those fears that we might foster would be the fear of death, the unknown, the fear of getting sick, the fear of going without, the fear of judgment, the fear of hell. Believe it or not, some people even fear heaven. They just can't believe that heaven could be as wonderful as earth is. That there's not going to be, I don't know, coffee in heaven, McFlurries and Willie's Mayo. And so heaven just can't be as nice as, as earth is and I'm dreading going to heaven. It's going to be such a downer to now have to sit there and do nothing all day long. It's, it's, that's just not, it's not true. And you're feeding that fear with all kinds of nonsense. There are things in, I think there's going to be better food in heaven than there is right here. That's for one thing. Some of you don't even know that, that you're going to eat. You're going to have a body in heaven. Anyway, fear of suffering, fear of testing, fear of not being saved, that I'm not good enough, that I've still got sin in my life, or the simple fear of God, that God is a God of wrath and anger and He is to be feared. And so, yes, Scripture does say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, but we've got to come and we've got to plot which path are we going to take here. We're going to feed that fear or lead that fear. Because when we come and we see the fear of the Lord is the, is the source of all wins, wisdom, we need to understand that some of us, we come to God with a fear that is a fear we're scared of God. We're nervous of God. We think of God as in the God of Sodom and Gomorrah, where He destroys and smites people of Ananias and Sapphira who make one wrong step and they're dead. And this is the God we come and we think of. And as a result of that, we come... And we begin to create a whirlpool of unaddressed fear because we're scared of God. When that's not what it's saying, the fear of God that we're being called to is a fear of God that comes and respects God. That understands the enormity of God, that He is the High King of Heaven. And that when we come and we see God, we see that He is a God of love and mercy and grace and kindness. That the cross and His heart for the lost and the healings, and the deliverance, and welcoming the Gentiles into the family of God, and the provident cut. God is all evidence of the fact that God is a good God. That within that, within, couched within the love of God, is the wrath of God. And that the wrath and the anger of God is always first and foremost led by the love of God. We come and we settle those fears and anxieties, and we come and we settle the whirlpool of unaddressed fears in us. And so as I come and I bring this into land, I want to come and I want to quote 2 Timothy 1.17. I want to come and I want to call us to resist the temptation to feed our fears and to come and understand that we're meant to lead our fears. And I want to come and I want to use 2 Timothy 1.7 
to come and help us show what it looks like to come and lead our fears, to come and lead those fears forward and to take advantage of legitimate fears. Do you understand what I mean by legitimate fears? If I'm standing here and this is a thousand meter drop, my heart should be nervous about that. And so I shouldn't be doing a little dance here looking at you because any moment I could fall down and die. And so that's a legitimate fear. And so you come and you manage those fears. You lead that fear. Okay, there's something there that I've got to be careful of. And so 2 Timothy 1.17 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God has given us a spirit of power, love, and self-control. And so when we come and we think of a spirit of power, I want to come and say that you are not helpless. You are not helpless. Kaz tells a story about a friend of hers that, that has this saying, which sounds so cliched and terrible, but actually we realize there's such truth in it. And so when, whenever someone's battling or going through hardship or suffering, she comes and she says to them, you are powerful. You are more powerful than you know. Come on. You can do this. And it's like, oh, cringe. But actually, I want to come and I want to say you are powerful. Let me give you context in a moment. But when we come and we talk about power, we're talking about the, the power to come and affect the external environment that you find yourselves in. And you're not helpless. Because Ephesians 3.14 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, according to the riches of His glory, that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. And so you are powerful, not because you are great or anything great in you, but because God is great and because His Spirit, which is great, is in us. And because God has granted His Spirit to us to come and empower us, to come and to change the external environment that we find ourselves in. And so you've got power over your external environment, especially in the context of Jesus' life where we come and we see how Jesus comes and engages with the world around Him and takes authority and power over this sickness, over this demon, over this situation, over these people that are fearful of Him of these who have been abandoned, and he moves towards them. And so we have got power through the Spirit of God inside of us to come and take authority in the realm, in the external realm around us. Does this make sense? And so I want to come and I want to say that in the context of your fears, you are not helpless. That you have the Spirit of power, you've got the Spirit of God living inside of you, that you can come and take authority over this sickness that you can come and take authority over this spirit. That you can come and take authority over this fear. Okay, there is a drop here, but God, I'm reminded right now that number one, I don't have to stand here. And number two, that as long as my feet are on firm ground, I'm okay, and I don't have to do anything silly, all of a sudden the whirlpool begins to settle. Number two, the spirit of love. The spirit of love. And this comes and it rebukes us. In the context of this is that we feel unworthy. 
And the Spirit of love comes and tells us that you are not unworthy. You are not unworthy. Do you know that you are loved by God? For God so loved the world, for, the God, for God so loved you, that he sent his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life, not perish. God loves you. He loves you. You are loved and precious to God. 1 John 1 tells us that God loved you first. Before you did anything, before you could do anything, before you gave God anything, before you could even make God happy, He loved you. How and why? Because He made you. Because the fingerprint of God's creative genius and hand is upon your life and He loves everything that He makes and so He loves you. It's called the unconditional love of God and so He loves you. And when we realize this, that He loves us, that we're precious and that we're valuable to God, it comes and does two things in us. When we begin to receive the unconditional love of God, we begin to exude the unconditional love of God back to God and to those people around us. But secondly, what it does is it comes to God and it causes us to realize that we are precious to God and valuable to God. And if we're precious and valuable to God and loved by God, God, who is the God who is there, who is very much alive, is not going to abandon us or leave us. And so He is with us. In the midst of our fears, we might feel like we're abandoned, but the truth is, is we're not. We're loved by God. We have the spirit of love that comes and reminds us that we are precious. And even though people might react poorly or treat valuable to God, we know that they are the same love that God loves us with because we know we are valuable to God. We know that they are valuable to God. And we know that despite the circumstances we find ourselves in, God will not abandon those that he loves. Can I just say that sometimes we come and we say, God, where are you? And we're praying for a short-term solution or a short-term gratification. <clears throat> That's not coming through and we're saying, God, where are you? And we reinforce our fears. But God is not always interested in coming and granting our short-term satisfactions and gratification as much as he is in our long-term journey and our long-term salvation and sanctification that he's working out in our lives. And so sometimes he'll forego the stuff here and now because he's working on a bigger picture in our lives. But you need to know that you are loved, that he is always there, that he'll never abandon, leave, or forsake you. And so we have the spirit of power, of love. And number three, of self-control, which comes and tells us, that tells you that you are not a victim. And so... In the spirit of power, it's the external world around us that we can come and exert an influence over. But in the spirit of self-control, it's the internal environment, the eternal, internal atmosphere of your life. So Galatians 5.22 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And self-control. And so when the whirlpool of unaddressed fears begin to swirl, when the hamster wheel of anxiety begins to turn in your heart, when the feeling of dread starts rising like a tap left on in a, in a bath, and it begins to rise and rise and rise and begins to flood over and flood the house, as that dread begins to fill up inside of you, you need to be reminded that you are not a victim, that you must not feed your fears. You need to come and lead your fears. And this is where the self-control comes into play.
where we come and we call ourselves here to come and to lead ourselves, to lead our fear. And so last week someone was telling me about um, a brief that they got for some work that they had to do six weeks before that. And just after that meeting, they lost that brief. It was from a two-hour meeting to come and to, and they lost that brief. And they'd been looking for it, looking for it, and they couldn't find it. And eventually, after six weeks of anxiety, dread, and fear, they admitted it to the person. And by that stage, it was just like they were riddled with anxiety. And the person said, oh, that's not the end of the world. Don't worry about it. I think, actually, let's put that on the back burner. There's this other thing that we need to get to. And six weeks of anxiety, six weeks of a whirlpool of unaddressed fear had been left to come in. For what? I know of someone else that during COVID, very conservative, very wise, had gone about looking after uh, their retirement, and in COVID, a year and a half out from retirement, on the basis of some advice from someone on a whim, changed something and wiped out five bar on their retirement. Just like that. They would never have done it before, but the extreme, coincidence, the, the, the extreme context of COVID unsettled them, fears and uncertainties. And then a few weeks later, they got an SMS from SARS saying that they owed several hundred thousand rand. Closed that SMS, banked it away, went into a hole of insecurity that caused severe health damage that they only emerged from six months later. And when they went and looked at that message from SARS, it was one of those scam messages. And when they went and asked SARS, SARS actually owed him money. There's a whirlpool of fear, unaddressed, that you leave, that spirals out and comes and robs us of the life we're meant to live. And as we sit here, I can't help but think there are fears in this room that you're harboring, that you're feeding that if we could come and take the intangible fears of this room and turn it into a tangible mist, we wouldn't see each other. That if we could come and take those intangible fears and turn it into rocks and rubble, this would look like a quarry, this building. So much stone would be in here. If we could come and turn the fears that are present in this room into water, we would be flooded out. If we could come and turn the fears represented in this room into gold, we would be richer beyond belief. And as we come and we consider this high King of Heaven, all hail King Jesus, the enormity of who He is, the colossal stature of God who comes and towers over every fear that might exist and might be in our lives, it is unacceptable for us to live and to feed fear, to live with fear and to feed that fear. It's scandalous and it's unworthy of the God we serve to come and allow these fears to come and rob us and determine how we behave or what we do, or how we treat each other. And so we need to come and lead that fear, and you can come and lead that fear through reality. You can say, okay, fear, let's look what you're doing here. And so often fears come and create fantasy worlds that we come and live in. A fantasy world in the fear of flying. I'm so nervous of flying. But if you come and anchor that in reality, you know that it's 1,500 times more dangerous to get into your car than it is to get into an airplane. Or we come and we think of death and we're like, oh, and we create this fantasy world of death. But the Bible has so much to say about the next life and heaven to come that it's just so beautiful that it comes and it stirs you with a sense of, okay, this might not be my current reality, but it is my eternal reality. 
And it comes and it, it, it settles those fears. It settles that whirlpool. And sometimes we've got to come and we've got to lead those fears by the hand with truth. When we come and we call out the falsehood of those lies and that deception that's feeding the fears, and we come and we combat it with the truth of God, and sometimes we've got to come and we've got to lead our fears with faith. I wonder if the musos can come up. We've got to come and we've got to lead those fears with faith. Where you come and you say, this is where I find myself now and I don't know. I don't know. But we come and we say, but this is God. My faith begins to balloon inside of me. I come and I say, in the past, this is what happened, but this is how God came through for me. My faith begins to balloon inside of me. That my current faith is spurred on by God's past faithfulness. That my current faith is spurred on by the enormity and the colossal nature of who God is. That as we come and we lead our fears with reality and truth and with faith, we come and we put them in their place. And as we take a moment and we sing now, I want to ask us to come and be reminded in the face of our fears, whatever they might be and however big they might be, that God is bigger. And that your fears are unworthy of the God you serve. And to come and put them in their place this morning. And to do that, in song, in worship, in this time now, ask God to come, settle these things, put them in their place, to come and help you to lead these fears, not to feed them. As we sing this song, may you be reminded that God can. God is bigger than your fears. He's bigger than anything you think is big out there that He is a God of love, and He loves you, that His presence will not abandon you, and He's working out His good plan in your life.